that our religion is worthless and we are tragically only deceiving ourselves. So my prayer for us today is that we will take heed in this text, ask God to reveal blind spots, and then submit to his will in our lives. If you're here today as a non-believer, it's my goal to convince you that in your resistance to God, you are in fact submitting to the ruler of this world. And it's my task to persuade you of the dangers of believing the lies of the one that Jesus says was a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies. And so today, I pray that God opens your heart to hear his gospel, the good news of his son, the one who saves us from those lies. James 4, starting in verse 1, James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. As I mentioned earlier, we have a choice to make. Either we submit to the world or we submit to God. Now you might be thinking, I'll just take the third option and choose neither. But let me assure you that God gives no third option. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. In like manner, James gives only two options in this text. Make no doubt about it, there is a battle being waged. Like Aragorn tells Theoden in The Lord of the Rings, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. So I invite you today to choose your battle. Option one, the battle you can't win, submission to the flesh. This passage begins with James shining the light on the source of the discontent which was wreaking havoc on the church. The choice of James's audience to submit to their passions. He just told us in chapter 3, verse 16, that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And right before that, in 3.15, James shared that this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
So when we consider this, we can conclude by extension that when they chose to submit to their passions, they in fact were choosing to submit to the enemy. And by doing this, they ushered the serpent in and seated him among them. And in verses 1 through 3, we see the result. Fights, quarrels, murder. Now, we don't know for sure if physical murder was taking place among the members of James' audience, as there's no historical proof of it. But we know from 1 John 3.15 that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, I'm not aware of any fights and quarrels within FCBC which come even close to the magnitude that we see in the text here. And I thank God for that. But that doesn't mean that we're immune to such a thing. The passions that waged war within the bodies of James's audience members also wage war within us today. And when those passions which wage war within our bodies are given a seat within the church, they then wage war within Christ's body. Which is why I want to point out that this should serve as a warning for us. We are living in volatile times. The last year and a half has been filled with incredible turmoil and discontent. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Battles continue to rage on concerning masks, vaccinations, and lockdowns, and we haven't even hit Labor Day yet, let alone flu season. Election season is right around the corner, and soon we'll be inundated with ads aimed at tearing down political opponents. Even sports have become a battleground of discontent lately, the latest example being the Olympics, where Americans now root against other Americans as a result. And all of these things produce a common result, division. And again, don't think that we're immune to it. We may not have seen full-blown fights and quarrels over the past year, but I think that we can safely say that we saw a glimpse of the passions within, didn't we? The side looks, the assumptions. Well, that person wearing a mask is just living in fear with no faith in our sovereign God like I have. Or that person not wearing a mask is obviously they don't love their neighbor like I do. These passions, they're alive within us. And here's the scary part. We lust over them. Some of you have translations that have pleasures in place of the ESV's passions. The Greek word used here is hedone, which is where we get the word hedonism from. Think about this for a second. James is telling us that the very thing causing fights and quarrels inside the church is something that we find pleasurable. We lust over it. And James wants to remind us just how malevolent this is by likening our lusts to adultery. Throughout the letter, James has been addressing his recipients as my brothers, and now he uses some of the harshest language found in the New Testament by likening them to adulteresses. Don't think that this didn't go unnoticed. Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians who would most certainly be familiar with God's likening to the children of Israel to adulteresses. 
like in Hosea, where God commands his prophet Hosea to go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Or check out Ezekiel 23 after you put the kids to bed tonight to get a sense of how God feels about our double-mindedness. This is who we are. At our very core, we find pleasure in the things that God warns us will bring about death. And as James tells us in verse 4, this makes us enemies of God. This wasn't God's design for us. In the beginning, God created man. He breathed life into him and caused him to live. He gave man a dwelling place where he walked with him in the cool of the garden. He gave him work to tend to that garden and share in the work of his hands. He told man that they could eat of any tree of that garden but one. And he told man that the reason for that was that it would open man's eyes to no evil. Or up until that time, he knew only the goodness of God. He told man that if he ate of that one tree, he would surely die. But the serpent, that ancient enemy, entered the scene in Genesis 3, convincing the man that if he disobeyed God and ate of the tree, that he would surely not die, but in fact would be like God. And in Genesis 3.6, we read that man found pleasure in the fruits of that tree, and so he took of it and ate, and sin entered the world. The world that had only known the goodness of God, now under the curse of sin and death. Man chose the enemy's lies over God. The war within that James highlights in this passage, the Apostle Paul also understood quite well. One of the most quoted chapters in Scripture is Romans 8, understandably so. But the road to Romans 8 must first go through Romans 7 where Paul writes, starting in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I, do, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who indeed, Paul? Who indeed? Well, James gives us a second option, a battle we can't lose, submission to God. But God, praise God, that when we come to the end of ourself and we realize that we in fact can't save ourselves, that there's always a but God. And James gives us that but God in verse 6, where he writes, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And why does God extend us this grace? 
Because as James writes in verse 5, he yearns for us to share an eternity with him. He yearns jealously. And don't confuse this with the sinful, bitter jealousy, jealousy that James alludes to in 3.14 and 16, which ultimately leads to death. On the contrary, this is a pure longing to give us life. Before I go any further, I should probably pause and point out that your translation might have the word spirit capitalized here, meaning they believe James is referencing the Holy Spirit. Other translations, like the ESV I'm using today, don't capitalize it, which then leads us to believe that it's the spirit of life that God breathed into man in Genesis 2-7. The Greek word that's used here is pneuma, which means spirit, breath, or wind. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to the Holy Spirit. But theologians disagree on the use here, which is why you might see something different in your Bible. I just happen to fall into the ESV camp here that believes that James is referring to the spirit that God breathed into man, making him a living creature. I land here mostly because if this was indeed the Holy Spirit referred to here, it would be the only place in the letter of James where the Holy Spirit is referenced. So I'm not saying that I'm correct. I mean, as like I said, many theologians with much more knowledge than me disagree. And if you happen to disagree, please come and talk to me. I'd love to hear your input on it. But regardless of how we translate this, the fact remains that God does indeed yearn jealously over us. Several times in the Old Testament, God calls himself a jealous God in warnings to the children of Israel over their inclination to turn from him and to serve other gods. And as I said before about his jealousy, this isn't a bitter human jealousy. It's a pure desire born out of his unfathomable love for us. A few years ago, the teen discipleship group was given an assignment to choose their favorite name of God. For example, Elohim, which means creator, mighty and strong, or El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. One teen told the group that her favorite name for God was Jealous. At the time, I was struck by that, but I didn't think to ask why she chose that until a few weeks ago when I started preparing for this sermon. I reached out to Gabby Twardowski and I asked her why she chose that name, and this was her reply. Quote, one of my biggest comforts is knowing that my God is a jealous God. When you look at jealousy and what it means, being fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights or possessions, it's incredible to think that the God of the universe, the God who sees all of outer space and sees it as small, which is something we can't even wrap our heads around, he is fiercely protective of us. We are his possession, his creation, his love. He loves me so incredibly much that he is fiercely protective of me. My God is jealous because he loves me more than anything. That's why it brings me pride, comfort, hope, joy to know that my God is a jealous God. I dare you to go try to tell Gabby that her God's jealousy is wrong. No, what Gabby gets, 
And what we all would do well to grasp is that our God longs so jealously for us that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he sent his son to suffer the death that we so rightfully deserve. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God's grace overcomes our sin. And God yearns to give us that grace, but there's a catch. It comes back to that choice mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. We must choose to submit to him. We must repent of our ways and turn from our sin to God. As James writes, starting at the end of verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And just in case you're, only, you're thinking that this only applies to non-believers, I invite you to take a closer look at this verse, particularly James's instruction for the double-minded. Where have we heard that phrase before? James has exhorted us throughout this letter to examine our hearts and determine if the fruits of our lives reflect the faith that we claim to have. This is James's thesis statement for the entire letter. We all, every one of us who call ourselves Christians, should be asking God to purify our hearts. Like David writes in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Choose to submit to God. Submission goes against our being, doesn't it? Just hearing the words like nails on a chalkboard. We don't like to submit. We much prefer to resist. And God has us covered there too. Check out verse 7 again. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. Remember, the devil's ultimate plan is to separate us from God in an attempt to deny God the opportunity to give us that which he most desires for us, life. Resist the devil. Choose life. Choose God. And when we choose God, look what James says happens. Starting in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is the promise of God's presence in our lives that we all long for. The peace from Philippians 4-7 that guards our hearts and minds. That we can rest in the assurance that whatever this way comes, our God is with us. But again, we must choose God. We must choose to draw near to him, and then he draws near to us. Okay, I hear you, Don. How do we draw near to God? And this is probably my favorite part about teaching at FCBC is you guys have such great questions. <laughs> well, James already gave us one way in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Something that we see from verse 3, the original recipients of this letter were doing wrongly. Pray. 
ask God to draw near to you by asking him to be involved in even what you would consider to be so beneath God? Have you ever withheld prayer because you feel it's just so far beneath God that you don't bother bringing it to him? I know I have. In my life, it might sound something like this. God doesn't care if you get that project completed on time. Now, while the universe doesn't hang in the balance dependent upon the timely completion of my project, this doesn't offset the fact that God cares about me and the anxiety I feel. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-7, through 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, there's that word again, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God cares for you. And when you think about this, you come to the realization that maybe there's something more to our prayers than getting something from God. It's at this point that we realize that maybe, just maybe, the point of our prayers is to get God. To be in a relationship with him. And this is what James's audience seemed to have missed. They were asking wrongly to spend on their own passions. In their desire for earthly gains, they were missing out on something far greater than anything this world could offer. They were missing out on treasures that Jesus says neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. As my brothers from our Sunday night small group can tell you, they were missing out on the one thing. Nearness with God. Choose to draw near to God. Lastly, when we choose to submit to God, God exalts us. We heard Peter write similarly, but in verse 10 of our text today, James writes, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. If we choose to humble ourselves before him, he exalts us. Jesus told us in Matthew 23, 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We gain victory not by our own strength or effort. We gain victory by giving ourselves to God. Earlier I told you that this is a battle that we're in and that we must choose who to align ourselves with. I shared that this choice is binary and that in choosing we have a friend and we have an enemy. While this battle rages on for us in this moment, I want to point out that the author of this collection of books has already written the ending to the story. He gives us the consequences of our choice. In Revelation 20, we, we read the consequences for those who choose to be enemies of God. Revelation 20, verse 7 writes, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I don't read this passage in an attempt to scare you, but if it does scare you, good. It should. This is what God tells us becomes of those who choose to align themselves with the world and are enemies of him. And it shouldn't just scare you if you're a non-believer. This should cause us as believers to examine our lives and see if our fruits indicate allegiance to God or allegiance to the enemy. But let me end this with the outcome of the other choice, the choice to submit to God. So let's pick up in chapter 21, where we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So there we have it. In the words of Joshua, choose this day whom you shall serve.